We've all heard that the Bible is a story, but what does that actually mean? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Goodwin, joined by Paul Caminetti and Glenn Powell. And today we're ex- excited to start a short series that's solely focused on the Bible's story. We might hear the term story thrown around a lot when it comes to the Bible, but what does that actually mean? And what impact does it have on our lives if the Bible is indeed primarily a story? And I think it would be helpful to start off by clarifying what exactly we mean by story. Because I've personally known people who really don't care for that word much. It sounds like it's a fairy tale or something that's made up, but story and truth aren't mutually exclusive. And really story is directly in line with how humans operate, whether we realize it or not. Yeah, I think that's, that's right, Alex. I mean, the reality is, is that uh, humans have always been story driven creatures and it's through story that we make sense of our world and, and our lives in it. And, you know, the Bible writers seem to, to grasp that because far and away, narrative or story is the dominant literary genre in the Bible. Glenn, I think it's something like 45%, I think, of right. the Bible is, is, uh, is narrative. And, you know, you see this in Jesus' teaching as well. People are always asking him questions. You know, how do I love my neighbor as myself? In fact, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't launch into, you know, some five-part discourse on how to love your neighbor. You know, he he answers that by saying, well, you know, once upon a time, there was a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he you know, got beat up by some robbers, and and uh, and we know that is the Good Samaritan story. That's that's mm-hmm. Jesus' answer to uh, to to those types of questions. So, I, you know, in the next four weeks, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the idea of the Bible as story. And I think, you know, it's important at the beginning that we distinguish between the Bible's many stories and the Bible's overarching story. Those are yeah. two, two different things, which I think may be a foreign concept um, to some people and certainly absent in, in a lot of our preaching. And as we've been talking about ourselves the, uh, the analogy that we've been using, and I like it, is the, the detective show, the modern detective show, mm-hmm. which can we agree that British detective shows are the best? Yeah, Sherlock. Exactly, exactly. But anyhow, you know, it's at some point in the show, you know, you're introduced to the cork board, you know, on which are pinned mugshots and bank statements and airplane tickets, but it the beginning, there's not the red string zigzagging between them. It's just merely, you know, information and the detectives are flummoxed. But then the red string begins to form and that becomes the narrative. So that's what we're going to do in this next four weeks. We're going to kind of focus on this upper story, uh, Mm -hmm. the red string. And, you know, so maybe we ought to start by making that statement. There is a unified coherent story in the Bible. And without it, the Bible is just a hodgepodge of information. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of this relates to the episodes we've already had earlier, how the modern Bible created a Bible that was kind of working against reading the Bible as a story. It broke the Bible up visually into different little 
pieces that were not connected. So it helped people to not see the Bible as a story. I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie Memento, one of those Mm -hmm. Christopher Nolan films. And it's this crazy idea of a guy who is uh, trying to solve a crime, but he wakes up every day and he doesn't remember a single thing from earlier in his life. And every 15 minutes, he forgets what's happened. So he has Mm. continuing short-term memory loss. And yet he's trying to work on this life mission. So the way he combats this is to fill his life with post-it notes on the mirror when he wakes up every day that tell him things. He tattoos information on his body, right? He's got these little Polaroid photographs stuck all over, taped on the walls, so that every time he looks at them, because he forgets everything every 15 minutes, he's just reminded of this bit of information and that bit of information, but he's always struggling to put it back together, that red string idea that you just talked about, Paul. And I think, unfortunately, that's what the Bible has become for a lot of people, is this kind of vast collection of post-it notes and verse of the day and uh, a little micro-teaching here, a little encouragement there, devotional bit there. And I think they don't connect them. People haven't always been told, here's how all these bits of spiritual information connect into something as beautiful and enriched as deep as a story. And that's what we want to talk about over these weeks, is how do we not have a memento Bible but have a story-oriented Bible, a Bible that is oriented toward telling us the great story, the meta-narrative of God in the world. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And, you know, again, to come back to the word story and, and some people's discomfort with it, obviously there are, you know, small stories, stories that are just there for entertainment or maybe to teach us a little moral lesson or something. You know, I read Jack and the Beanstalk to my three-year-old or Goldilocks and the Three Bears or something. And those are just, you know, entertainment stories. But there are other stories that scholars call kind of meta narratives, right? Stories that shape our understanding about the entire world, how the entire world works. And meta narratives really provide answers to, to the big questions that every human uh, kind of comes into contact with or, or needs to find answers to. Um, and, and I took these straight out of the, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright's book, The New Testament of, and the People of God. And the, the five questions that he kind of brings to light as questions that shape the human worldview or the, the understanding of the human experience are, one, who are we? Two, where are we? Three, what is wrong? Four, what is the solution? And five, what time is it? Yeah, that's fascinating. And what's interesting about those questions, Alex, is you can apply those questions to all kinds of different worldviews and the stories that come from them. And I think it's very revealing to to kind of imagine what the answers are for different worldviews that people embrace and how that leads to a very different kind of story. So, for example, if you took something like Western consumerism, They have operating answers to these questions, and people, whether consciously or unconsciously, can live by them. If consumerism is what they think is the big story of the world, even if they have other things they might believe on the side, if they actually operate in the story that accumulating, buying things, having these experiences related to things, if that's their story, the thing they're actually living by, then they have answers to those questions. Who are we? We are creatures who enjoy things and enjoy having good experiences with them. 
where are we? We're in the United States of America, you know, if we're in this country, and it's a place that is very adept at providing those things. What is wrong? What's wrong is sometimes I don't have enough money to buy the things that I want. So I just live in order to get more money to get those things and those experiences. What's the solution? Steal more? No, probably not. But work harder, you know, try to get whatever I can to get the resources, the dream of the good life. So the yep. solution is to work hard toward the good life. And what time is it? That's a timeline question for the story. Like, where are we in the storyline on a big scale? And and if people are really consumerist, they're like, well, I'm living my life. I'm at the point in my life where I can enjoy things. The end is going to come when I'm going to have to stop enjoying things. So I live for the moment. This is kind of what the Apostle Paul was talking about. Let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. And so you just live for the existential moment and good, pleasurable experiences. Yeah, I, I think it's possible then that um, you can take something like Western consumerism and you can massage it and kind of morph it into a God thing, right? And I think that's mm -hmm. actually happened in our generation and, and we commonly call it the prosperity gospel. And that's kind of where this whole thing gets gets tricky because people do have, Alex, to your point, everybody has a meta narrative and a story. And the idea is if we just include God in it in some way, then this becomes becomes the Bible story. And so, you know, for prosperity gospel, the whole idea is if you, you know, are very faithful to your church and to the charismatic, you know, super pastor that's there and you give tons of money, then, you know, God is going to prosper you beyond your wildest dreams. That's really uh, Western consumerism cloaked into, into spiritual language. And it's, it's not surprising then that people get it wrong, that we get it wrong. And that's why this red string, why this meta narrative, the Bible's upper story is, is so important for us to grasp. Yeah, I think that that idea that different overarching narratives can kind of bleed into one another is is super important um, and, and kind of merge and form a new thing. Prosperity gospel, you know, there's merging, merging Christianity with worship of our nation. Christian nationalism obviously is, is something that we've all witnessed recently. Um, and so, you know. How how would you guys say that, you know, we've got all these competing narratives out there and, um, you know, they're, they're coexisting, co-mingling, competing with each other. How, how would you say the Bible fits into all of this? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And first of all, just to reiterate what you said, that they really are competing narratives and the fact that we are creatures that live by story. We can't not live our lives as some kind of story. You yeah. might be more or less you know, self-aware about that, about what you think the story of your life is. But everybody does it, and we can't escape it. So the fact that there are competing narratives, other ways to organize our experience than the story we find in the Christian Bible, tells us that we have to be intentional about adopting its story as our story, or we're going to just fit the story of the Bible you know, into some little place in our lives where we get our master story, our meta narrative from some other place that we mm -hmm. really live our lives by. So that's what's at stake in kind of adopting the story of the Bible. It's interesting. Um, Thomas Cahill wrote a book called The Gift of the Jews, 
where he makes the case that there was kind of an, a comprehensive pagan worldview that was cyclical, that said all of life is in this cycle of life and death. The, the fertility religions of the ancient Near East were based on this. Things come and go, and the gods are the people who can make the crops flourish next year after this year's crops have died. And so you're, you're honoring and serving and worshiping that god, trying to get life out of death again like it happens every year. And so it involved sacrifice and all these things. And he said it was the Jews who first introduced to the world the idea of a linear, linear narrative, a story that doesn't just go around in circles, but actually moves along in a direction from something to something better and different down the road. So the visions of the prophets and the idea that there's a God of the covenant who is working with his people to bring something brand new into the world rather than just an endless repetition of what's already been, that's what's at stake in the competing narratives between the Bible and some of the other narratives in the world. And so I think there needs to be an intentionality of not reading the Bible as just bits and pieces of spiritual information, but adopting the story that the Bible's trying to tell. Yeah, I think that's interesting, Glenn, the idea that the Bible didn't really arise out of a vacuum, but it was really delivered to counter um, a competitive narrative that, mm -hmm. that existed in the, you know, the near ancient uh, Eastern world. And uh, to your point, then, if, if we're going to not fall prey to these other narratives, there are no shortcuts other than to be super conversant with this story that we've we've been given. And, you know, the practical steps towards that, which we've talked about before, you know, read whole books, you know, read whole books, read whole books. Right. There, there's, there is a, a big message here. There is an upper story here. And if we, you know, live in the shallows, in the bits and the pieces, you know, we just frankly will never really grasp the story. Yeah, and if we don't adopt the story of the Bible as our big story, we're going to, by default, adopt another one. And, and it's worth maybe mentioning that these stories are super evangelistic, right? Every time you're watching advertising, that's a plea. It's an evangelistic outreach by consumerism to draw us into its story. You need to have this item. You know, I noticed all the car luxury car commercials. It seemed to always be a big deal at Christmas time. And it's they're drawing you into this desire to own this object. And so, again, intentionality. Uh, we have to consciously adopt the worldview and story of the scriptures, or something else is going to take over our lives. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, it, it is tricky, though, uh, because some of these other competing narratives are close to the Bible story. Uh -huh. And, you know, this is really kind of what Paul is doing throughout a lot of the New Testament when he writes to the church at Galatia and to the Colossian church. You know, the Colossian church has, you know, some religious ideas there that if you are super, you know, um, you know, controlled with your body, and if you go through these rigorous practices and you're meticulous about these particular feast days, then you're going to become, you know, the person God designed you to be. And, you know, that all sounded good. And Paul had to say, that's a, that's a narrative, and it's close, but it's the wrong narrative. And so he has to continually lead them back to the Jesus narrative. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're going to get into the Bible story itself and how it, how it functions from beginning to end in, in latter episodes. But I think, you know, if, if the Bible's claim is that it's the true story of the whole world, I think it's helpful to, to kind of answer those five questions that we posed or that we shared at the beginning. And I'm just going to take it straight out of, out of N.T. Wright's book here, uh, where he provides kind of some, some summaries, I guess, of the answers that the Bible story gives to those big questions. So number one, who are we? We are humans made in the image of the creator. We have responsibilities that come with this status. Two, where are we? We are in a good and beautiful, though transient world, the creation of the God in whose image we are made. Number three, what is wrong? Humanity has rebelled against the creator. This rebellion reflects a cosmic dislocation between the creator and the creation, and the world is consequently out of tune with its created intention. Number four, what is the solution? The creator has acted, is acting, and will act within his creation to deal with the weight of evil set up by human rebellion and to bring his world to the end for which it was made, namely that it should resonate fully with his own presence and glory. This action, of course, is focused upon Jesus and the spirit of the creator. And then number five, what time is it? He doesn't actually write about that in this book. I think he added that question to his, his worldview questions later. But, you know, as far as what time is it, he, he writes later that, Basically, the de decisive victory against these evil powers and the things that are cor corrupting creation has been won. And we're kind of in this in-between already but not yet time where, where the, the final, final victory, the, the establishment of, of his kingdom on earth has yet to uh, come in its fullness. I think that's exactly right. And what those questions do is just clarify for us, you know, what is the nature? What's the fundamental nature of our story? I, by answering those questions and discerning those answers clearly from the big story of the Bible, I think that's, uh, you know, you're way down the road in terms of actually living out, imagining, loving, living a Christian worldview um, by, by knowing those answers and living into them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, those were quick, kind of simple, straightforward answers. Obviously, when you get into the Bible itself, you realize that it's not exactly a quick, simple or straightforward story. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it would serve us well here to be honest about the nature of this story. And uh, it, it is maybe better described as a saga than a, than yeah. a story. Um because it's something obviously that is a very long redemptive story, but it's a messy long redemptive story. It covers, you know, generations. The the Bible, if I'm not mistaken, was written over about a a thousand year period. And uh, it, it is a complex story. And honestly, when you're in the middle of it, sometimes it's not always a satisfying story. There there's there are fits and there are starts and you know, people have said over time, it seems like God is playing a game with us. You know, he kind of pulls the plug on Israel for 40 years and lets them kind of wander around. And between the intertestamental period, there's 400 years where God, God seems to go silent. 
So we, we should at least be honest about that story. But this is why I think, you know, the red string connecting all the stories is mm-hmm. so important because when we do see that, you know, you do begin to see that God, the protagonist, is still faithful to his mission. And he, through history and through our daily lives, is striving to move the, uh, the story forward. And, and it really is understanding that upper story that this is where the hope comes from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah, it's, the story is, in fact, going somewhere. So um, it's a long haul thing, not a short haul thing. And I think, again, reading the story patiently, knowing that God works over time and the story really is headed somewhere. Right. These big announcements at the beginning of the Gospels, the angel appeals, appears to Mary, says, look, the story's making a massive leap forward here. Things that have been you've been waiting for for centuries are going to happen right now and you're going to be involved. That's the way stories work. Yeah. So, so the final point we want to hit before we wrap this episode up, Paul, I think you mentioned toward the beginning that, you know, roughly 45% of the Bible is narrative. It's, you know, stories that, that move along and and things that we're used to reading, but the other roughly 50% of the Bible is not Mm -hmm. in fact narrative. There's songs, there's letters, there's prophecy. Glenn, can you talk about how that fits into something that we're calling an overarching story? Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, we had an earlier episode, a session on reading the literary forms of the Bible and realizing the Bible is actually not a single story form book. It's a collection of different kinds of books that are different kinds of writing. So there are wisdom sayings and prophecies and song lyrics and, yes, books of narrative, but there are letters. There's all these different kinds of writing in the Bible. So is it really accurate? to say that the overarching form of the Bible is narrative or story. And I think it is. I have a a book on the life of Caesar Augustus in which the entire story is told in the form of letters. Letters Hmm. from his parents when he's younger, letters between Augustus and his friends. Then as he grows up, it's between Augustus and other generals in the Roman army. And then he finally becomes Caesar. And Again, everything is a letter. And what you realize is songs, letters, prophecies, even wisdom can fit into the story in particular ways. They give the story texture, right? Like when you're you're away, like back when I was in college, way back in the day, I used to get letters from my grandparents because, you know, uh, there wasn't an internet and Facebook to share information with. And those letters fit into the story of their life and my life. And that's what the Bible is. It's all these different things. Song lyrics are worshiping God. Many of them reference elements in the story. And so there's this overarching element that is narrative, that is the big way to read the Bible. But, and then we need to read the smaller parts of the Bible, whatever literary form they are, as elements that fit into the story in particular ways. Uh, The letters in the New Testament from apostolic leaders telling churches in particular places, here's how you live out the story in your place and time right now in faithfulness to Jesus. And so it doesn't take away the fact that the Bible is story just because there are non-literary, non-narrative forms within the Bible. Yeah, I love that. It's it's almost like it adds, you know, brush strokes of color 
I guess, to, and, and depth and added meaning when you see, you know, how people are maybe reacting to things that God's done in the past um, and, and things like that. And I love that there's a variety of literature in there and it's not just narrative. Yeah, I think a, maybe a good way to, you know, sum this up, you know, everything that we've said today, though, is that it, it, it's we're pretty good at the stories. I say we're pretty good at the stories. I read an article recently that says the average person who claims to be a biblical Christian knows 12 verses and 12 stories. And so Perfect. they're, really? they're wow. crafting their worldview, you know, around, around those. But, it, but it, what's clear is that we don't know the saga. That, that, yeah. That's the missing piece. And, you know, it's not one or the other, but really, honestly, if you could only have one piece, it's probably more important to know the saga, to know the big story. At least then, as you're reading, you can plug the lower stories you know, in, into the, uh, into the upper story. So that's, that's our challenge. And Glenn, you mm -hmm. mentioned it earlier, and I don't want to leave without missing this again, that it is true though, that the form of our modern Bible, our complicated Bible with chapters and verses as notes is an anti-story form. <laughs> right. And, yeah. you know, small readings actually deconstruct the narrative. Yes, that's exactly right. And so. So that, that's why, you know, we're convinced more than ever that your Bible's like a merch or not a nice to have. They're a must have. We have to start reading to, uh, to see the upper story. Yeah. And the beautiful thing is, you know, without sitting down and trying to read the entire story straight through, if you have a growing awareness of what the storyline actually is, which is something we're going to cover in, you know, coming up episodes. But if you have that, like in your mind as you're reading, then any particular part of the Bible that you're spending your time on that day, you know how to fit it into the big story. And it helps you read it in context appropriately, understand it well. And, and you know, that fitting it into the big story just makes Bible reading more authentic and uh, helps you understand what's really happening. So there's a direct practical benefit to knowing what the big story of the Bible really is. And don't you think if we do that, that people will be less flummoxed in their Bible reading? Right, exactly. Because yeah. they know where they are in the story. They know where it's headed, where it's been. And it, it just gives more, I think, ease of understanding for the particular part you're in that day. Mm hmm. Well, as as we've mentioned throughout the episode, this is the start of a four-part series on the Bible story. And today we really wanted to establish that the Bible truly is primarily a story. And all of its wisdom, guidance, truth, doctrine, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is contained within that story. And if we let it, we can we can have the Bible story become the dominant meta-narrative in our lives. Um but it's it's up to us to to let it kind of overcome the uh, the other ones that are vying for our attention and, and our allegiance. So on the next episode, we'll talk about how the story actually works in, in more detail. And then after that, we'll explore how the story culminates in Jesus and how we can read everything in the Old and the New Testament through what what we call the Jesus lens. And then finally, we'll talk about how we as Christ followers in the 21st century actually in, enter into the Bible story in our own lives today. So we've got some uh, some big topics to tackle, but uh, we're excited to have you guys listening along and, and hopefully this is helpful and, and orienting to you. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see you on the next one.